Hi, welcome to the Anime Research Group. I'm Ian. I'm Denny. I'm Freya. And this week, in our quest to watch all the shows we never had time for, we look at number six, an anime about boys finding love in a dystopian post-apocalyptic society. This week, uh, the content warning goes to insects and body horror stuff. So yeah, uh, Denny, tell us about number six. Number six ran from July 7th, 2011 until September 15th, 2011. For a total of 11 episodes. It is based on a novel series by Atsuko Asano that encompassed nine volumes from 2003 until 2011. It was decently popular in Japan, though it never popular enough to get translated to the West. It has a manga adaptation because of course it does what doesn't these days. The anime was made by Studio Bones, a studio we last encountered with Star Driver, which... None of us really liked all that much, though I think today we were all a bit more enthusiastic about the show. The studio is beloved for Mob Psycho, Solito, Oran, and My Hero, because everybody loves My Hero, or a lot of people do, but they've made plenty of beloved classics as well. There are some major changes in the anime regarding certain characters, fates, and plot beats that we won't discuss that here, because all of that is taking place towards the end of the story, whereas we'll just watch the first three episodes as usual. And with that, Ian, give us the summaries. So the TLDR is Xion harbors a fugitive, realizes his society is crap, and is forced out of his comfortable existence and has to flee from the society. All right, good. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> but since that's a rubbish summary, uh, I'll quickly go through the three episodes. Episode one is Drowned Rat, and it's A Tale of Two Halves. In the first half, it's mostly about Xion's everyday life. He's at a prestigious school. He has a close friend named Safu, and he spends his birthday with her uh, until he's forced to return home due to an incoming typhoon. The typhoon is the backdrop for the second half, which he spends entirely at home. Uh, he's excited by the typhoon, and he opens his balcony out, and he shouts into the storm. I think we've all done something like that in our lives. I have wanted to scream into storms many times. So after he gets out of his system, he is confronted by an injured Nezumi back into the room. Nezumi's initially somewhat violent, but Xion manages to disarm the situation. He keeps his mother away from the room with some excuses, and then he patches Nezumi up. Uh, they turn out to be a fugitive, and this was foreshadowed at the beginning of the episode, although we don't know what crime they've committed. Uh, they bond a little. Xion gets hints that there's more to the city and the government than he'd otherwise believed. And Nezumi will spend the night in the room, but he'll be gone by the time Xion wakes up the next day. And the episode ends with a police car rolling up to Xion's house for questioning. Episode two is The City Adorned in Light, which picks up again after a 40-year time skip. Xion's now working as a groundskeeper in a park, and he discovers a corpse during his shift. The corpse kind of looks like a mummy we don't get to know anything about it. Xion meets up with Safu again after his shift, and we get a mini expo dump about how he's been stripped of his elite status, but he hasn't let Safu know much of the details. She's going to be leaving the city tomorrow to go to another city for genius camp or <laughs> university or something, and she wants to have sex with him, but he kind of rebuffs her. Specifically, she wants a sperm and his child. Yeah. Um, so the next day, Shion and his co-worker are discussing what happened to the corpse. Uh, there were some unusual circumstances around it. 
the wife seemed too young, the death wasn't shown on the news, uh, but his co-worker cautions him for saying disloyal things. But soon after the co-worker dies, he exhibits similar aging to the corpse, and Xion sees a wasp emerge from his neck. Xion ends up being arrested for the murder of his co-worker and gets transported away, but Nezumi will rescue him from the car, and after a chase, they escape through a sewer to the shanty towns that are outside of the main wall of the city. Episode 3 is almost entirely within Nezumi's home. Xion hasn't really adapted to the new situation and wants to contact his mother, which Nezumi says is a bad idea. He learns that he is uh, infected by the parasite, and the, the symptoms start to show on him, but at a much reduced rate, at which point he screams for Nezumi to cut the parasite out of his neck rather than letting it burst through naturally. Uh, he'll survive the operation, but he undergoes some physical transformations. Uh, he loses consciousness, and it takes him about three days to wake him up. The rest of the episode is mostly talking about what the parasites are like, how they're going to take over the city in the spring after hibernating throughout the winter, and Shion and Nezumi have different views on how they should act, whether they should warn the city or if they should laugh their asses off and enjoy <laughs> it. And it's not hugely important, but at the end they meet someone called Dogkeeper, who is a contact of Nezumi's, who gives Shion a short message from his the mother thus making Nezumi a softie, really. But this leads to a rehash of the conversation they were having before, and Nezumi kind of ends on an ultimatum. Basically, if you warn the city, you will become my enemy. Dun, 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 dun. Dun. All right, so let's talk about the episodes. And I, I have to say, I quite liked episode one. I felt that it was um, a decent start for the anime. We establish our two primary characters immediately with uh, Nezumi and Shion. And what I assume is one of the more important side characters in Safu, though we don't know how exactly she's going to factor in. And, I mean, we're not going to know for a while until she presumably comes back. There's no point having her leave if they're not going to bring her back. We get a little bit of a look at our society. They live in this giant uh, encompassed city called Number 6. And we learn that Chion initially is part of like a upper-class high intelligence group uh, in school, which is why he and his mother are allowed to live in this really nice mansion. Their house has literally got a waterfall. <laughs> yes. But at the end, they do get kicked out of it because she helped Nezumi, and that makes him a criminal. Thus, he's not allowed to stay in that location anymore. It's very, like, yin-yang, <laughs> this episode, I guess. Because, like, like I said, we've got the two halves. There's the there's the light side, which is the uh, him enjoying the high life, and then there's the dark side, which is his uh, interactions with Nezumi. One thing that the that this anime is doing very well of is making use of the lighting in the show. It's just always on point. <laughs> the most important aspect of this episode is really the confrontation of Shion and Nezumi. Like everything else is just set dressing to get to the crux of this episode and the crux of this entire show which is the relationship between these two characters so we should probably talk about that scene in more detail it starts with Xion being in his room at home and there's a storm going outside and at some point he just bursts open the windows and goes outside in the storm and screams with all of his might uh, and when he goes back inside to close it he turns back around and all of a sudden Nezumi's there injured they're about the same age I thought that was a really great scene. It's it's very horror movie-esque. Um, yeah. 
especially because he's just standing there with the like he's got like a cut or something on his arm and he's just got his hand over it and the blood is dripping down it's like strange how like being injured can make you seem more menacing but i think i think it does yeah yeah i mean and the scene also really serves to introduce us to the characters themselves like previously we just see shion's kind of a nice guy who hangs out with Safu. They're both a bit odd in the way they talk because they're super high intelligence kids, like in the advanced school that are learning like neuroscience during their classes. It's interesting because they all seem to be learning different things. Uh, Safu's special uh, specialty is is neuroscience, like neurobiology, whereas uh, Xion's is ecology. If you think about it, it kind of makes sense. This is a dystopian society where most of the world has been destroyed. What we assume is nuclear war. They're living in a city, so every like intelligent person is specifically quotation marks bred for a specific job by the government that they need them to take. Is that true? It's what I assume. Like I think that makes sense within like a closed off walled in society. Would it be unreasonable to do that? Who knows? <laughs> Most of that is just you introducing as a nice guy, but when we get to like this typhoon scene and him with Nezumi, really see that he's a bit odd. To put it mildly, like he's very, very fascinated with Nezumi as soon as he meets him, and he has absolutely no qualms about letting him in. Like it only takes like a few seconds from him like seeing um Nezumi. There's only like a few cuts, and then immediately Nezumi's up there with a th- with um uh with his hand up against his throat and she and Shion up against the door and is like, Don't move. It's a it's a pretty good place to to cut an episode. Uh, for the break and uh, Shion's reaction is not oh no please don't kill me it's oh man how are you doing this and later when he gets knocked down again and put put onto pushed onto the bed with um Nezumi like holding his arm in some kind of lock Shion's like oh man how did you do that did you push like a specific thing or yeah he's very interested in uh, Nezumi's quirks slash abilities yeah, I mean, he's got like all these weird abilities for himself, right? Like he's uh, a student in ecology, but he's got a quite well-stocked um, first aid kit in his room. With and he um, explains how that he he has like a local anesthetic that he's going to give Nezumi, <laughs> um, <laughs> and then explain how he's going to suture all the blood vessels. This is something that we learn notice in episode two as well but more with uh, Safu when they're talking to each other, and they don't really talk like real people. They talk kind of like robots, and they talk very dryly, so to speak, very academically. When, like, when uh, Shion and Safu are talking yeah. in episode two, she mentions, like, hormonal responses, and uh, I can read your body glands. They're very detached. Yes, and uh, I think I think that might be the explanation of why Shion is so fascinated with Nezumi, because he is so detached living in a perfect society where everything is planned, everything is controlled, encountering this kind of wild force that's wounded, raw, and completely out of control and expectations is must be fascinating to him. It's it's not entirely accurate, but I think of um, Nezumi as being a action-based character. Uh, we're going to see this a lot, particularly in the second episode. But uh Shion, by contrast has like grown up as like a very cerebral person it's like i kind of made a, a, a remark in my notes about like the difference between romanticism and modernism but we can come back to that when i think of how i'm going to phrase that <laughs> <laughs>
like we talked about um Shion's fascination with Nesme, but it also seems to be like reciprocated. So he's actually like surprisingly trusting of this guy who is like, oh, let me just suture your wounds together. With one weird exception, which is um Shion briefly has to go downstairs to like pick up something to eat. And like this is this is when we get to learn about like he's a fugitive because there's been like a bulletin from the the central authority, whatever they were called, uh, to everyone uh, about how this guy's escaped from a prison or whatever. And he comes back with the food, and I think, I think it's really, I, I don't know that he, um, Nezemi could possibly have gotten the same bulletin, but I think it's very telling that that seems to be the only time he's really uncomfortable around Xion is immediately after he comes back from hearing that bulletin. I don't think he could have gotten the same bulletin because their bulletins all came from um, like the bracelet they're wearing that serves as ID as well and Nezumi does not have one. I think it's more that he's let him go and so in, he doesn't know him all that well yet. So yeah. he doesn't know whether Xion is going to go sell him out and call the police and he's just placating him to keep him here. Yeah, and I and I and I guess the argument as well, he's actually left the room at this point. So you could just say it's purely from the ignorance of, mm. of not knowing what he did, and uh, that would also work, I guess. <laughs> but over overall, I would say way too trusting. I mean, I mean, at the end of the episode, they're like literally sleeping in the same room. <laughs> like it's just like, well, I'm just, I'm just I'm gonna sleep the storm out here. Sleeping in the same bed, you mean? Yeah. Yes. They even hold hands. Mm-hmm. I mean, just indicating their uh, relationship just early on so much foreshadowing they're both fascinated with each other already yeah i I think at this point fascination is definitely the right thing to call it nothing else yet i will say the last scene is really good uh, of this episode where he's just looking out uh he's got the like mid-distance stare and uh, (laughs) and the and the car comes up just quite ominously yes because of course when he wakes up nizumi's gone it's the like so it begins moment (laughs) (laughs) okay now that we've talked about the important bit of the episode i'm going to talk about the less important bit uh which is the first half we kind of neglected to mention the scene where he uh shion while in class sort of daydreams and it's represented as him sort of floating in the sky over the city there's a bunch of blowing leaves and then he turns into cherry blossoms that's an interesting scene setting up I think the whole like um because you said he's like happy and enjoying himself but the the he's definitely still you can tell that he feels like something's off yes yes certainly what I mean by enjoying himself is more of a He's he's goofing around with yes. with his with his friends and acquaintances, but when he's on left to his own devices, he's he's yeah. th- he's certainly not uh, like happy. I think this ties into one of Asano's uh, influences slash intentions with this, which is uh, to create a um, repressed society, at least somewhat based on uh, Japan around the time that she was writing this. I've got a quote here from her that fits this pretty well. The suffocating atmosphere of number six is, I think, similar to that of Japan. I myself felt something chaining me down when I was a teenager, and I find myself wondering why in this country roughly 30,000 people take their lives every year. Even though we are so blessed, why is, it, why is living so difficult? To confront that question, I needed a city that was extremely repressed. Yeah. At least in the first half of the episode, the 
apart from the early scene with Nezumi, and I guess that's kind of the contrast, right? Is the, I mean, it's the contrast of the whole show is the like endemic background repression of the, um, the state and the literal oppression of the state through violence done to uh, Nezumi. But the whole, it's quiet and comfortable, their life. They've got a nice house. He goes to a good school, whatever. And yet there's still something off and it feels very like clinical and desaturated. Right. This is the thing I kind of was trying to hint at with the weather, right? Is that this yeah. is very much an anime of contrast. You've got mm-hmm. the, um, like the fake world, which I th- uh, of the like dystopian society is very clean and bright, uh, but is sterile. Whereas when we get outside the city, it's more like uh, like a favela or a shanty town, but it's in it's it's darker, but it's also more colorful. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot more life there, um, and I think that this is in particular why they needed the storm in the first episode is to bring in that darkness yeah. into the city. Also, it's just good symbolism of the storm whipping and uh, destroying every. It's as a destructive force whipping across Shion's ordinary life, bringing, blowing in the wind, blowing in something brand new and exciting. I was going to say destructive, but liberating. Yes, yes. It destroys his comfortable life. It destroys the comfort of the society he enjoys and brings in something completely new. Because it's a false comfort, you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to talk about Gundam Double O here for a second because I watched that show this week. But I'm pretty sure in that show they also have several discussions about how the ordinary citizen is more than willing to give up a bunch of freedoms uh, in order to enjoy safety. And they're more than willing to profit of the misery of others as long as they're not aware of, directly made aware of it. Or Right, but Gundam Double O was a direct response to 9-11. Yes, so was this. Yeah. Yeah. After, I, and I quote again from the author, after the terrorist attacks in America on September 11th, I spent, a lot, uh, I spent some time pondering the relationship between the state and the individual. America is a big country where countless people live, and yet in that large country, a small number of terrorists appeared and brought about such a huge attack. Whilst I was thinking about the, me- the meaning of that revelation, the following question came to mind. What can individuals achieve against something as large as a state? I wanted to try asking that myself that question by writing a novel series in particular she also finds herself asking i want to know what the terrorists are thinking or are they really evil yeah i mean in, in this society nezumi is definitely quotation mark again the evil one he's, yes. v, he's vc x12 uh 20 something he's in he's in line of numbers and letters that's easy to assign and easy to uh discriminate against because he's a criminal this is Purely speculation. But I wonder if this is based somewhat on the plight of uh, Zainichi Koreans in Japan, or at least if that was an inspiration for them. Because they're not really an accepted part of uh, society, even to this day. I mean, like, I was thinking more of, like, the Barakamin. Uh, that, that also. But, like, there, there's a lot of these, right? Yes. Yeah. Is there anything we haven't said about episode one? I feel like we've said too much about yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say, we probably should move yeah. on to episode two. Because episode, episode two is really our, about the consequences of of the decision he made mm-hmm. uh, four years ago. I do like that they made a much larger time skip. I would have hated if it was just like 
the, we got the police interrogation scene. I think that would have sucked ass. Well, I mean, we, we will get a, a little bit as a flashback in this episode, but um, I definitely just prefer that because instead of focusing on the losing, uh, we move straight to it having been lost. The thing is, even though he is a loser in the society, uh, so to speak, he's still quite comfortable. I don't think there was, I think I assume his job was assigned to him. And although it's like a much more like quote unquote like a lower class job as a groundskeeper, I mean the house he lives in with his mother is still really nice. His mother has a bakery. Like fuck it, his house is nicer than my house, <laughs> and I am not a pariah from society. I, I assume he's just more comfortable with the freedom he's gained from his decision, and we see it as well in his conversations with Safu, who's retained the kind of detached way of clinical way of speaking whereas Shion has already grown a little bit more uh, natural and comfortable in the way he talks. At least I found it to be that way. I mean, that's pro- that could just be like a, yeah, like a class distinction. But yes. by moving by moving classes, you adopt the mannerisms of the other. Class. I feel like there's more to talk about during the, se- the first half of the episode. So I'm just going to quickly say that the second half of the episode, uh, after Shion's been arrested, Nezumi, who's turned into sonic speed of sonic sound from One Punch Man, it looks exactly like him. Turns up to rescue Shion. Ironically, Shion is voiced by uh, Speed of so. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. And we have a bit of an action scene where they escape. Uh, one of the park robots that we we'll, might talk about in a bit blows up and they dive into the water. They later dive into like a water canal that leads them into sewers and that then leads them outside. But there really isn't that much to talk about during those like 10 minutes. Look, I, I, I'm not going to lie. While we were watching, I had to restrain myself from making a ton of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle jokes <laughs> because the rat Nezumi is leading you into the sewers where he will fight his war against the uh, oppressive society above. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I that I uh, that I thought was a thing they did, but they, both of you disagree with, is that when they made the characters grow up, uh, I felt they made ne- Nezumi more androgynous than like any of the other characters as they aged. So is that just me or is that... I feel like that's just you because I personally didn't see it. I just... Yeah. I don't think he's any more androgynous as an adult than when he was a kid. Yeah. Like the, the main things I think we need to cover are the relationship between him and Safu, the sort of symbolism, if anything, about the, the, the disease that is happening. And some of the high imagery in general. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I mean, let, let, let's talk about the disease um, first of all, I guess. Um, Not sure disease is the right way of putting it, like the infection, maybe. Right, because we see it for his coworker. His coworker like ages very rapidly. Mm-hmm. His skin darkens, like it starts off as like a black spot, and then it like takes over him, and then we have a wasp erupt out of his neck. So, I mean, the hive imagery, which they use for, like, what I assume is, like, a main government building, or maybe it was the school, is, is, is like, quite unsubtle. <laughs> yeah. um, but I was, wonder- I was wondering, Freya, if you knew anything very specific about the kind of uh, insect that was, was used. It looks a lot like a Japanese giant hornet, uh, which is not parasit- uh, parasitic. But the whole um, wasps hatching out of uh, people is obviously based on the fact that most creatures that are called wasps actually, quote-unquote, raise their children this way. 
the famous example is the tarantula hawk, which um, eats nectar, but uh, kills the tarantula, lays its eggs in it, and then the, the larvae eat the tarantula, and then they hatch out of it. But the Japanese giant hornet is a typical eusocial hive-living insect. So they're, they're mixing inspirations here, which is fine. I'm personally quite interested in why Shion specifically got arrested. So um, perhaps you're like referring to like the fact that they've given us this sort of like Orwellian society where they've got their um, their like bracelets that have them in constant communication. It tracks their movements, not insanely detailed, but certainly when they leave the house and as they move between areas, because uh, we see that when the men in tracksuits, yeah. <laughs> as I will refer to them, uh, come. I think... Like the real the real crime that he seems to have committed, as that he seems to, uh, as they sort of imply in the in the flashback scene, is it was specifically the. It, I mean, it's just non-conformity, right? It's that you've empathized with an outside force of society, therefore you're clearly suspect yourself. So we punish you by socially ostracizing you. And I have to believe that something similar happened to his coworker, because his coworker seems to be much more aware of the danger of speaking out because. Yeah. Uh, but that's interesting because I assume that the main reason Xion got arrested is because he actually saw the wasp erupting. I'm not sure whether that was planned and the other person who died of the wasp was also planned or whether these were just accidental uh, eruptions. The way you're phrasing it uh, would indicate that the coworker was deliberately killed by the wasp for his awareness of societal issues. No, no. Uh, what I would know, I was only commenting on the fact that I think that the co-worker, either because he has always been a lower, ca- lower class member of society, or because he has been punished in a similar way to Xion, is much more aware of the dangers of being in society. And this mm. is this is unrelated to the wasp coming out. I think I think this is just an accident. And I think it's a combination of the two things uh, is why he's arrested. I think he's arrested partly because of figuring out the terrible secret of space, but also <laughs> just because he's clearly not reformed in the past four years. And yeah. so he needs to be punished regardless. <laughs> That does mean. Though, though I do also find it interesting that the the three people we see the wasp erupt out of, or we know have been killed by that wasp, are the guy in the park who is mm. then found by Shion and his coworker, then Shion's coworker, and then it erupts out of Shion himself. So I'm wondering if the wasp. I'm speculating that the wasp breaking out of the um, like hatching could possibly have something to do with being in close proximity with somebody else whose wasp has hatched. It's not clear, like, when people were infected. They haven't told us that. But, like, the thing that Xion says later in the episode is about, like, how it clearly it does it without you noticing. Like, it's just a little print brick. You, you, you may not have even noticed. Like, I don't think that the wasp itself caused, the, caused it to them. I think that <laughs> infector wasps that like, <laughs> are, like, smaller, like a, a male-female distinction the wasp. So I want to bring it back to the uh, bracelet for a second. I mean, I mean, uh, one thing that we didn't mention is that um, what he does have to sign into work using this bracelet, and part of signing into work is giving a sort of loyalty oath. Yes, uh, I pledge allegiance to the flag <laughs> of the United States of my unchanging society. And well, I mean, specifically, it was the loyalty is to an unchanging society, which is the, which is very interesting. Yeah, and late, later on when they're escaping, Shion, Nezumi tells Shion to throw off his bracelet. And it's kind of a symbolic imagery 
reminiscent of throwing off his chain of throwing off your chains essentially because it's it is his major connection to number six and all the people in it it's the way he can contact people and he has to throw all of that away to escape into the unknown yeah it's also just a good idea <laughs> yeah, yeah though i was honestly surprised when the thing didn't explode after he threw it away because the way it lingered on it i was totally expecting that yeah, so the technology in this is quite interesting because at some points uh, we think that the technology in the city itself seems to be quite advanced. The computer systems they're using, these bracelets around their wrists. But at other times it also seems to be quite regressive. They've got these uh, adorable robots um, that do the, the actual like cleaning in the park and I guess she just really maintains them. Mm-hmm. They're 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 cute. They're like a mascot characters, but they don't seem to be very functional <laughs> or advanced, shall we say? And maybe that's just because they're cleaning robots. But I don't. I think that there's. I think maybe that the comparison between them and the robot rat that Nezumi uses is quite striking because that seems to have quite a lot of functionality. You can let it act on its own quite freely. Uh, it can do a bunch of advanced things. He can communicate through it. And I don't know if there's if this is in keeping with I don't know maybe the fact that there is some advanced technology that is being held back, or if it's just the or if this is just be like well people outside the wall have have continued to innovate whereas this society has stagnated we've developed this kind of robot we don't need to go any further which it clearly doesn't seem so because when we actually go outside all the technology looks much much older like pre- essentially pre war technology like what we currently have. But you're yeah. right, like, Shion's, Shion's super high-quality real-life mouse robots, uh, sorry, Nezumi's super high-quality real-life mouse robots just currently don't have any real explanation, so I can only assume that he maybe stole them from somewhere, yeah. because th- these are what he uses to get around and, like, spy and also talk to um, Shion in episode 2 and 3. One of the things, I'm not really going to talk all that much about the manga, because... I think the anime is mostly uh, because these are just adaptational differences, but all of the differences that are made are all just visual stuff. As in, the robots have a different look. In the anime, they're penguins. In the manga, they're, they're more humanoid-looking walking robots. And the locations look a little bit different. The mother's design is a little bit different. It's always more aesthetic differences rather than plot differences or character differences. But yeah, I'll probably talk about the other important bit of the episode, which is the conversation between Shion and uh, Safu. So, I, I, f- I think this is kind of interesting because clearly, at least from Safu's point of view, she uh, has an interest in Shion, whereas I think in the other way, um, he might just view her as like a childhood friend rather than anything. They're close enough that she, he'll go around to her house for a birthday party, but like she's very explicitly is like i want to have sex with you and he's like eh, maybe in two years when you come back <laughs> i i think there is a distance between him and safu because he is not willing to explain like well the reason that i cannot join you on the on uh the super secret program for gifted children is because i happen to be nice to a fugitive one time four years ago like <laughs> Like, for being close friends, he's like, I, he doesn't tell her any of it. All she knows is something happened and he's fucked. Yeah, I, I also believe that his um, 
placation of staff with saying uh, maybe when you'll maybe when you're back in two years is more of a hopefully you'll have forgotten by then or maybe we'll have moved on by then rather than a direct promise is it just that he know it like because he does say that he that he's not against it that he does have like interest in like sex and and females but like is this just him covering up for the fact that he already knows that he's not straight <laughs> or is that something that he's only really going to discover much much later i i feel like that's something uh much much later because i, I still don't really feel like there's any like direct physical love between nizumi and Fion right now he's not sexually interested in him Mm-hmm. All of their all of their mutual fascination is more of a like emotional uh, level. Yes, because as as we actually see during that scene, while he's talking to Safa, as soon as Nezumi's mouse robot shows up, he's like immediately struck and runs off to follow him. Yeah. And, well, that might be true for Shion, but is it necessarily true for Nezumi? For instance, like when they meet up, when he like saves him which we don't really have any understanding about why he would do it. Like, maybe Nezumi is just part of an underground resistance who is saving everyone, or maybe he's specifically been following Shion and is just only saving him. What he says is, uh, I need to repay my debt. Um, Okay. Which feels like it's code for, I'm interested in you, (laughs) and I wanted to get you you out of this city. It certainly feels like an excuse. Because, like, let's ignore, like, the hand-holding and the bed-sharing four yes. years prior or the um weird argument that you could make that like Xion's reaction to the violence four years ago was establishing a semi ex okay relationship Sh- shout out to people who understand bl technology uh, terminology <laughs> like even when he catches up with him and like they're in the car doing the like the escape it's just like he makes remarks about like the difference in heights and about how how do you know I haven't seen you naked? And and so on. Like, and I mean, it comes across as just teasing, but like, yes. like I don't go around teasing my friends about seeing them naked. So, I don't know. <laughs> Jokes on you. What? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah I, I, feel, uh, I definitely agree with Freya there that it's, right now, it's only an emotional thing and we'll see that as well in episode three the visual imagery certainly reads in a more romantic direct romantic way yeah. that if you replaced one of the characters with a girl you certainly have a, a traditional romance like and i think that just gives us a good transition point to move on to episode three as well yeah the only final thing that i really wanted to mention that really stood out for me in episode two was when he was being punished by the men in track and <laughs> they were driving him through the city they explicitly go past the bakery where his like mother is working and we get their like car moving past he looks up but the mother doesn't see it and i was just like man they definitely did this just to be dicks and uh, this might seem silly out of context but i mean we live in a world where the police do like things they're about this cruel all the time so oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was a good touch yeah, or, yeah. Or, okay danny you can talk about it now. but yeah so what i was saying is that when shion and nezumi are hanging out in the hideout outside of the walls in episode three the way the characters are physically framed and physically inter- interacting with each other it certainly looks romantic like if this was a boy and a girl we would definitely read this as a romantic relationship in the way they're touching each other and interacting with each other. I mean, I read it as romantic, even if, even if it's just interest and not like genuine love yet, because you know, three episodes. 
that's what I'm saying. Like we we definitely see an evolution here in episode three where it goes beyond what it was before uh, yeah. with just fascination. Because if all Nezumi wanted was to repay his depth to shave Shion, could have just kind of let him go after he'd saved him. He doesn't need to keep him around at all. But yeah, episode three is certainly interesting because we learn a lot about both characters. We don't really need to talk about the dog keeper because that's towards the end of the episode and it's not really all that important. I, I'd say the most important events of this episode are just Shion and Nezumi hanging out and... Um, Removing the parasite. Yes. So what do we want to start with? The parasite, I think, is a good place to start um, because it's going to cause like a tremendous amount of physical change directly to Shion, which... Um, like quite literally as well as symbolically like makes him like a pariah in like the city i think that if he went back in the yeah. city the fact that he has had this massive scar which makes no freaking sense but whatever. <laughs> um the fact that his hair color and his eye color have changed he's got like red eyes and white hair he is now like so obviously not fitting in with the rest of the city yeah so it's it's a kind of a you can't go back moment he also gains for some reason, which hasn't been explained yet, and I don't know if it will, he gains a giant snake scar around his entire body oh, yeah. that just wraps him side around. That... I don't think that's going to be explained. Also, Shion has no nipples, just from a purely <laughs> visual point that I would like to make. And neither does Nezumi. Neither does Nezumi, yes. But the thing is, Nezumi also has like a similar scar, right? It's not quite the same, but he also has this scarring. So do we think the indication is that he has also like maybe survived... The parasite or something like that well it might be implying that um he was a test subject or something which you know it's a very Jap- <laughs> i was going to say it's a very japanese thing to do to experiment on prisoners but it's not just a japanese thing yep americans you do it too brits we do it too <laughs> yeah and also i guess that sets up like a standard i was hurt by the system that's why i'm against it motivation I mean, just aside from all the other reasons. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's plenty of good reasons, but I feel like the, this the, the, yes. they off, this is the way they feel that they need to tell the story often. It's, they, need to, they need to give you a personal reason to hate the state in a story rather than the larger, more nebulous reason, because stories often fail to concretely identify issues because there's too many to identify in a single movie or series. So rather than having the millions of issues, they focus on one specific thing and they personalize that through a character so that it's much so that it's easy for the audience to identify the specific um like place that they place the parasite in the neck and they like uh, have to like cut out of him like one thing that's very clear is that he seems to have reacted to the parasite differently than other people or at least he's reacting to it much slower because if nezumi were there with a scalpel to cut it out of his co-worker he didn't have the chance to do that. So in this sense, Shion is, is quite fortunate. At first, he starts yelling for him to like kill him because I guess it's, it's yeah. so painful. Yeah, the actual scene is like Shion is lying on the bed and Nezumi sitting on top of him with the scalpel and he's like sc- Nezumi screaming at him to, don't you want to live? Like, there's so much you haven't seen yet. You've got to yes. live. Like it's a pretty it's a pretty strong scene just from a visual and emotional perspective. I think I would have preferred maybe if the delivery was not him yelling, or if it was more of a like raw yelling than the sort of this may be a bit unfair, but it's very anime yelling. <laughs> <laughs> 
like the the cutting out was very good. I was having my trauma center flashbacks. Uh, <laughs> yes, the, the DS game. They also do this thing where um, to like represent his experience, they like show him sort of sinking into the bed, and then uh, oh yeah, that was a great cut. Yeah, uh, yeah. So he sinks into the bed, and then he just falls into this kind of otherworldly anime realm where he's naked and he's floating and there's like lots of red and black color patterns pulsing around yeah so i guess here i can just sort of mention that the this show was directed by kenji nagasaki who um people don't like gundam build fighters do they i haven't gotten to it yet it's off my line some people do it seems to be like a very specific set of people really like Uh, i think it's specifically people don't like the first series of gundam build fighters but they do like all the subsequent ones interesting because it's just because it's just a gundam sports show rather than a gundam gundam show (laughs) i know i know at least one person who really likes it so uh anyway he directed at least the first season of that but unfortunately, he's kind of stuck as the My Hero Academia director at the moment. <laughs> Which, I mean, I'll say this, he has a good understanding of um, of getting the, the manga's themes across. I think some of those themes are pretty abhorrent, but um, that's a discussion for a different day. And he's good at allocating important scenes to um, people who know how to get the best out of them. I managed to praise MHA, everyone. <laughs> anyway uh he storyboarded all three of these episodes but didn't actually direct any of them who did uh three people uh i'm not going to talk about them but you know storyboards are kind of the bedrock of the visuals in mm-hmm. some ways which were all solid to good throughout this entire show that during these three episodes i didn't find like a moment where I thought that something looked bad, except Ian's uh, disgust for the food in this show. I, I think I, th- I think that like the, the, the high quality of food, of food animation recently has spoiled <laughs> for me, where I'm like, what do you mean this cabbage didn't take three hours to draw? <laughs> I think the chase scene in, season, uh, in the second episode wasn't amazing. It, it just felt out of place as an action scene in a non-action show. Well, no, that's that's fine. It wasn't clearly CG uh, to me, but it might have been. No, it's well, just uh, it didn't really. It didn't feel very tense. Maybe it wasn't trying to be, but is the reason it didn't feel intense is because the people who were chasing them were left behind after the first obstacle. Yet the chase carried on for another ten minutes. It was um, uh, directing problems. Also pacing issues, I think. It like lasted for a while, but it felt kind of weirdly drawn out because of that. Because we're talking about stuff anyway. Uh, the series uh, composer for this is uh, Seishi Minakami. So he wrote the second season of Birdie the Mighty Decode. He also wrote Railgun and Railgun S. Which, good shows. Entertaining shows. If better, than, better than Index. The best of Index. Like, like, I agree, but this is a very controversial opinion. <laughs> is it? I thought most people preferred Railgun. Uh, not among the people I've talked to. <laughs> okay, interesting. Some other things. Uh, Occ- uh, Occult Academy. Okay, not Occultic 9, good. No. I was worried uh, for a second. Hilariously enough, Vatican Miracle Examiner. Which we will watch at some point. It is on, our, on I think, both and mine and Ian's yeah. list. And probably most... Uh, prestigiously he co-wrote paprika with satoshi khan that's a good film yes 
specifically a very, pretty well-structured film, too. So good that Christopher Nolan stole most of his ideas from it. No, that's unfair. <laughs> We're coming for you, Christopher Nolan. <laughs> we know what you did. Let your actors sit down. <laughs> yes, let them sit. <laughs> also, please just let your movie come out later. It doesn't matter when it makes money, right? So there is two things I think that we... I mean, we could talk about Dogkeeper if we really want to. No, no. Like, apparently they're interesting because they definitely read as female but use masculine pronouns, but that will come up later. It's also... Pronouns are weird in Japanese. You do see this sometimes in like other contexts. It's 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 very much a contextual thing rather than like your your pronoun is very contextual rather yes. than being something that you keeps with you the entire time. I yeah. find that the most interesting thing I have to say about them is that they rent out docks for people to sleep with to keep warm. Yes, <laughs> that is the most interesting thing I have to say about them. Uh, I mean, it was interesting that uh, despite the fact that he bitched uh, Shion for. Uh, wanting to talk to his mother three days later after he comes out of uh, his operation coma he has he has already gotten his contact to get a message to Xion's mother I think maybe there's a little guilt there oh wait but also specifically he sent this little robot with a message the point is a message was sent <laughs> and I also think it's interesting what's in, in his mother's message which is a name and location presumably outside the wall Indicating that there's something more to his mother, maybe? Well, like, I mean, who is the mother? We don't really know. She had some sort of some sort of like reasonably successful life and then also has baking skills. Like that's <laughs> that's what we know. Maybe there's a romance going on with the guy who bought bread and donuts from her. She's very accepting. She's not like addicted to on about losing their uh, social status, so she's probably okay. She's also she's also had four years to get used to it, I guess. They make a big deal about the seasons in this show because the seasons are going to be the reason that the wasp is hibernating and that it's going to be really serious in the spring because that's when they're all going to hatch and it's going to like cause havoc. But I mean, this was suspicious to me because I guess the town didn't read as being in winter to me, probably autumn. And I guess this is why they can have the wasps going around infecting people anyway. Yep. I love September. I love how wasps get really aggressive in September. It's great. Although, like, as we've all now gone through the coronavirus and are very familiar with the R number, the R number on these wasps is tiny. Like, (laughs) they've been able to suppress the fact that all the, like, a bunch of people are getting, like, their necks exploding. So I guess this is what leads to me thinking that uh, uh, Nesmi has to have been involved in the project prior, because... It can't possibly be that well known outside of the town, but completely unknown within the town. Like yeah. even with even with like a media blackout, no, no dictatorship is this good. Uh, and this also makes me think that like the, I think that there the the class divide was important, and I think that it probably is more well known amongst like the the service workers in the town. Yes. But I have no evidence for this other than my suspicions. <laughs> anyway, most of the rest of the episode is. Shion and uh, Nezumi hanging out and talking to each other about random crap. And the society in general. Yeah, one of my favorite things that I want to talk about during this episode is Shion's hideout itself, because it's full of classical literature and... Specifically a lot of Shakespeare and Oscar Wilde. Yes. Well, well, it's not just that. You see, like, the, the, the Decameron, you see Dante's Inferno, you see quite yeah. a lot. Like, indicating that Nezumi is really well-read. 
And at some point later on, he does lit- just straight on quote certain works, uh, such as Oscar Wilde or Shakespeare. And um, later on, when they're outside, he also does like a very dramatic gesture because we haven't learned this in the anime, but I think it's only a minor spoiler from the manga I read is we learned that he's a theater actor or he used to be. And uh, I think that's visually already conveyed very well through this hideout and the way he moves during certain scenes when he's like being deliberately dramatic for Shion's sake in order to get the point across to him. Yes, he's very theatrical. Mm-hmm. It's, it's 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 kind of endearing. One of the things that brought up is like is like the ignorance of art from Shion. It's just like, well, I mean, I wasn't put on the art program. Uh, I was raised to be like an ecologist, I guess. Like, which indicates the art. There, like, I don't know how what like high art is like in this culture, but it definitely seems to be that your art cast is segregated from your science cast and so forth. Well. Uh, it's funny though, because it seems like uh, Japanese high school is like that. Uh, uh, having read a bunch, is that if you're doing art, you have to go to a specific art a school that does specific art courses, or just an art school. But like, well, what I was saying particularly is, I I don't know that we we don't have any indication that like, say, the elites of the city are all like, like, like getting off of the opera and, <laughs> uh, and um, looking at their Picassos. I mean, what better imagery to uh, to symbolize the the upper class than opera and Picasso? This is what I was saying earlier when I think that there is at least a, an implied romantic versus modernist conflict in the story. The society is like very lol science, and it's like, well, clearly we're gonna like found our city according to like scientific principles and whatever, mm. uh, and we don't need to care about art unless we're specifically in the art program and whatever. Yes, I mean you could disagree if I'm wrong, but I feel like that's a very common trend in dystopias. It's the advanced scientific state versus the more natural world. It's it's classical science versus magic, essentially. So, sorry, science. It's classical science versus nature. To yeah. a certain degree. Well, this is this is what I'm meaning by uh, by romanticism versus modernism. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, the only time that like we hear any like artistic knowledge from Shion is that his mother read the Happy Prince to him, which Nezumi dunks on him. <laughs> <laughs> Like, it, like it, I mean, I haven't enjoyed a dunking this much since uh, Quagmire dunked on um, the Catcher in the Rye, <laughs> and about like how. Um, Holden Caulfield is just a piece of shit. <laughs> uh, so shout out to Family Guy that one time. I mean, who doesn't like a good takedown? But yeah, there they go again. <laughs> God damn it, Ian, run! You'll never silence my takes on Holden Caulfield. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, whereas like he's all like Shakespeare and like I'll let me just quote Macbeth and explain to you all the rest of it. Um, also, I definitely would say that like his he's a very, he's a man of action and this is what the romantics ideal. They don't want you to be thinking. It's all about being uh, controlled by your passions. Whereas romantics is all about those passions. <laughs> like one of the defining works of the romantics is like the sufferings of young Vertha, which ends with suicide because he's feeling too many emotions. Like if there's anyone in this in this um per, in this show that's gonna quote Thoreau, go like I went to the woods because I wish to feel live deliberately. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely Nezumi, right? And he's also got this like stoic angle about like, well, you should just toss aside your mother if she is like holding your you back. 
uh, and stuff like this. Except for when he comes to the city, where he's very much, eh, just let's let, 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 let what happens happens. But other times, <laughs> he's very much a man of action and, and emotion. Well, specifically, the whole city thing is he wants to see it, like, just get destroyed, which... Uh, I, I guess later on in this show we're going to have a discussion of um, how, of, of uh, rebuilding after you smash the state down one way or another. I think this is a good time to talk to to move on to just to, just like do like a quick recap of our opinions and characters. Yeah. Well, we might as well start with uh, Nezmi since we're already on Nezmi. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is uh, Yoshimasa Kosoya who voices Nezmi. You might know him as Reiner Braun in Attack on Titan, or Kuranosuke Shiraishi in Prince of Tennis, or Denny will actually know this person, Orga Itsuka from Iron Blooded Orphans. Yes, third best Gundam. <laughs> it's your it's your favorite Gundam. I don't know if it's the best. No, one. it's not my favorite. My favorite is War in the Pocket, which anybody who's listening to this and likes mecha anime should go and watch Gundam uh, War in the Pocket because it's the best Gundam. And. As far as like a character goes, we've already said like a lot about him. He's definitely like, I mean, he's he's this romantic character. He's a, he's a person of action. I don't even want to say he 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 like thinks with his heart because I don't know that that's true. He's not a shonen protagonist, <laughs> but he's very emotional in in a, yeah. in like a, in like a different sense of the word. He's street smart versus book smarts essentially. <laughs> like we mentioned that he's got this like trusting atmosphere to him at times well actually but both the main characters do i i don't know that there's any indication we have about why necessarily he went to um to shion's house other than i guess plot convenience this is minor spoilers okay but um he was just running away from the government and he just happened to see shion like throwing open his windows and laughing into the storm and he kind of took that as a sign he said that pretty much in the episode, didn't he? Did he? I, yeah, I'm not sure. But yeah, he, he explains later how he t- t- deliberately took that as like a sign. But I, I, yeah, I think this this plays into it. He's He's got an impulsiveness to him mm-hmm. uh, that is missing from most of the rest of the people in the... Yeah. There is also a, a very definite bitterness to him, which, you know, makes a lot of sense. If Nezumi is the man of action, then Shion is the more, uh, is the passive character who kind of gets dragged along. Because his major action during these three episodes is throwing open the windows, which then sets everything else in motion and uh, fixing up Nizumi. But everything else in episode two and three, he kind of gets dragged along by Nizumi, which makes sense because he's in an unfamiliar world. Everything is new to him, so he needs the mentor figure slash guy to explain things to him, put him up to the new status quo. And we see this as well in episode three, that he still has that naivete about him when he's like, oh man, we got to go back to the city. We've got to tell everybody. We've got to warn them about these wasps. He still hasn't let go of the old world, of the values that have been ingrained into him in his entire life. But then towards the end of episode three is the first time he really makes a choice on his own where he takes a stance against Nezumi and saying... I am going to go back and help them, which, as Ian has said, Nezumi then responds with, that would make me your enemy, that would make you my enemy, which is a great way to leave off the episode. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this is, so, uh, since we've been talking about Sheen already, uh, and we might have more stuff to say, but I should probably mention uh, who he's voiced by, uh, which is Yuki Kaiji. Um, since we mentioned My Hero Academia, it would be criminal not to refer to him as Todoroki. <laughs> Everybody's favorite. 
Everybody's favorite fire and ice boy. He's also Aaron Yeager in Attack on Titan. Everybody's favorite screamy boy. <laughs> and is a genocidal maniac currently. Yeah, and uh, I guess both him and Yo- and, uh, Ho- and uh, Hosoya have both been in quite a lot. Like Shion, yes. like uh, Yuki Kaiji's had like a hundred plus main roles, like in Excel mm-hmm. World and stuff. Uh, for me, uh, I think of him as Citron. Well, uh, we would know him as Clement in Pokemon X and Y, which is a great character. And I think of him as I've forgotten the character's name, but the blonde person in Shinsukayori. Squealer. No, not Squealer. That's the only character name I can remember from Shinsekayori. He was not blonde, Denny. He was a rat creature. <laughs> and? So do we have anything else to say about Shion before we, we talk about Safu? He works pretty well as uh, the protagonist, even if it's kind of a like standard uh, role for this show. It's made better by his weird like uh, repressed yearning for being uh, liberated from... Yeah. Number six. Right. Okay. So I guess we could talk about Safu. Um, so this is the Kiono Yasuno. She's done a lot less than the other two. Her most famous role is definitely that of Megumi Kato in uh, How to Raise a Boring Girlfriend. Mm. That's Sai Kano, not the Sai Kano that we did before. I, th- I mean, she's interesting to me because she's one of the members of Valkyrie in uh, Macross Delta. Uh, the excellently named Kaname Buccaneer, which also means that she did the singing as part of Valkyrie because they're the idol unit within the, the, the thing. So, so Safu is, um, is is kind of interesting, and we haven't really talked much about her. Like, she's kind of a tomboy at the start. I get, I kind of want to say she doesn't dress in a very feminine manner. She's got like she's got like her like her like frumpy jumper on, her Velma jumper. Uh, which is knit by her grandmother, which is actually quite interesting, uh, because although she and she gets into fights with a guy in in uh, the class because he's not paying attention to her neuroscience lecture, <laughs> but this is the thing, right? Is that her grandmother makes this clothing, and she actually does have this sort of fa- uh, clothing fascination, which I guess is there to. I don't want to say feminize her a little bit because I do think of her as kind of tomboyish. Uh, but I, I do think it's like a fascinating contrast that she's got this uh, clothing interest, uh, but really comes across as the Velma. <laughs> her grandmother also uh, goes to an old people's home called the Twilight House. God, that was that was that was so that was so <laughs> oh, foreshadowing. Because okay, c- like because like w- um, when she's leaving and like the grandmother is like sympathizing with her because she didn't get to do it with uh, Shion, uh, and she's like, "Well, it's only going to be two years. It's fine." And then she gives her a needle to take onto the plane, and I'm like, <laughs> "This film, this came out after 9/11. You can't have a needle on a plane after 9/11." But like she's got this interesting relationship with him, where she's clearly interested in Xion. We mentioned this already, mm-hmm. like so much so. Uh, but she's also very forthright about it. Like actually, I like that this anime just sort of accepts that teenagers have sex. Yes, that's a, that's a thing they do. We don't need to have more love letter in the in the shoe uh, locker scenes. We need to people just to be like, you and me, we should do it. <laughs> because it, it's it's kind of cold, but it's also kind of refreshing in that way. Because like she's so blunt and. Like the way she just talks about like, well, if you were really interested in me, here's how your hormonal response would have changed and like how it would manifest physically. Yeah, I can see that you're not really jealous because otherwise because you would react in such and such a manner. Yeah, the more the more I talk about her, the more I think Velma is the correct archetype for her. She was fine during these three episodes. Her asking him to have sex with her was definitely the most interesting thing during these three episodes, but 
I just cannot shake the feeling that she's definitely going to die in this show. <laughs> something bad's going to happen to her. Yeah, something bad is going to happen to her, and I'm calling it right here, not having seen the show, she's going to die. My feeling is that she's going to like really not be able to take it when she realizes that Shion has rejected the society she lives in because she's grown up with all the privilege. Like this is going to like crush her and like maybe she'll become like kind of a dick who wants to uh like repress people more or stuff. But again, I also don't know. Yeah, I'd say that th- that would depend on how long it would takes until she learns about um Shion being like a fugitive slash criminal if she learns it like immediately in like the next episode then maybe not so much because she still had contact with him directly but if she learns it after two years in the future or so if we have like a little time skip then maybe uh she's on the plane to number five so i don't think she's going to be back for a while on the other hand this anime is trying to squeeze all nine light novels into 11 episodes so maybe well it, maybe it won't be that long at all yeah which is certainly a brave choice I think they probably didn't have a choice about how many episodes they were getting. That's true, but they could have bet on receiving a second season if the first one was successful, rather than trying to write all and uh, put all nine into one and then giving it an original ending. I think they were the production committee probably decided we're just gonna uh, early on, right? Just you're gonna make all of it in these eleven episodes. Fair enough, fair enough. We also don't really know, um, we don't really know the novels, so we don't know how much happens in each novel or how long yeah. they are, and uh, whether there would have been a natural break front for a season. Let's talk about the sound. I, I think the music worked quite well in these three episodes we saw. There were several moments during the episodes where it was very loud, but it was very impactful as well during the moments. I found it depended on the <laughs> the track they used. Um, and this is maybe it's a personal problem, but uh, I struggled with the um, MIDI instruments. The trumpets didn't sound the best. And like the main sort of tension dramatic track they use is, have features them quite heavily. And this is probably, this probably is a personal problem, but it always kind of brought me out of it a bit. On the other hand, the droning um, uh, electronic noises were pretty good, especially the sort of weird theremin-sounding uh, tremolo note that they used uh, associated with the wasps. And also... <laughs> there, was def- there was definitely at least one use of a theremin in this show. <laughs> yes. And also in episode two, in the scene where he's talking to uh, Safu in the cafe... And he's like reflecting on his old life, and they have the Ian described it as a Dolby Digital um, <laughs> uh, test noise. <laughs> it was, it was, it was good. I like that. How about you, Ian? How did you feel about it? Uh, like honestly, I for, uh, ignore me for this section because I <laughs> I have watched the show now three all of these episodes three times, but at least two two of those times were on mute. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, anything interesting about the pre- composer for this show? Oh, yes. Our composer, Keiichi Suzuki. Interesting person. In terms of anime, Oko's in, uh, and in terms of prestige stuff, Saint Young Men, which I forgot had an anime, and I'm sure we'll watch it at some point. The upcoming Uzumaki, and um, most prestigious, Tokyo Godfathers, which is a very different Sonic palette to this show. More interesting is his video game work. Mother, Earthbound, those games have really good music. 
I think Gygus's theme is very famous, but it's a really good piece of unsettling um, discordant music. It's, it's really good. Also very important um, for Toby Fox's compositional style. Go on, Dottel. Yeah, cool guy. Let's move, let, okay, let's move on to the openings and endings then. Like, sonically, we've got some, some really good uh, openings yes. and endings. Like, I don't know who is responsible for choosing the music for this, but they, they, really, they really got it right. Like, I almost don't, I almost don't want to mention the visuals at all. <laughs> I do, I do. Yeah, okay, so the opening anyway is Spell by Lama, L-E-M-A. Uh, they were only around for about a year. They did do like some other anime stuff, like they were on ongoing. The vocals, I've been trying to figure out who it reminds me of uh, since we since we first watched this, and I still can't think of it. It's completely a travesty to say they remind me of Nano Ripe, uh, mm-hmm. because Nano Ripe almost universally sounds awful when they do it. But I kind of get why I think that. Hot take: I kind of like Nano Ripe. <laughs> I don't. I don't hate Nano Ripe, but I. <laughs> I have complicated feelings about Nano Right. Like, would you prefer to describe the music here? Because I'm not sure I could do it as much. Uh, we can take turns. All right, Ian, you go first. It's uh, the reason I mentioned Nano Right is it's just got this ha- haunting vocals. It's yes, like it's not even that it's low tempo, but it but it feels slower than it is. It feels kind of tuneless, but in a really good way. Yeah, <laughs> like kind of like how if you've seen Nirvana, uh, well, I heard Nirvana <laughs> and like. The way Kirk Cobain has that, like, ah, that's so good. Yes. Uh, it's it's like that, but it's got, like, a breathless quality to it that I really, really like. Yeah, her voice is not, I think, what people would call traditionally uh, pleasant listening or whatever. I like it a lot, but... Yeah, this is not a J-pop opening by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. Um, and the song's sort of structured into really three main, very simple light motifs, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Literally use the word leitmotif in my notes. Yes, that's that's why that's where I stole the word from. <laughs> and one uh, very short but very good transition section. Transitions uh, in between sections of music very important, often not done very well. The main part is like as it kicks in at the end, the instrumentation really runs out. Yeah. Also, the uh, I think a, a male vocalist joins in in the second half. And this is important because it really fits it up with, uh, with the visuals. Yes. If you just start looking at it and you uh, you'd be like, oh, it's going to be a walking thing with clips of them, and yes, there are they are walking and there are just clips fading in and out, but it actually works really well because of it's they really it's not just I'm walking it, these every scene contains emotional content, and they choose a very specific like. Uh, set of hues to go with it we're like it's cyan it's like a yellow it's a magenta like these are all very sticky out things also the specific images they use are very um good at getting across uh, the character's situation so for Shion, it's all these scenes of like a bird trapped in a cage the scene of him like like looking yeah. up from below him with all of these skyscrapers uh, hemming in and then for Nezumi, it's 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 the it's the rain and it's um, the honey, the honeycomb like functioning as a prison that stretches up to the sky. Him literally getting beaten up by people and having guns pressed into him, uh, and also just the way they walk. She was just kind of walking like fairly normally, and then Nezumi's like doing this sort of determined little, like like he's wading through uh, water or something. 
the part that really sells it, and I think we would both agree is this, is that we see Shion, and he's it's like one of those classic movie posters where the it's a big image made up of lots of smaller images, and yeah. he is made up of a lot of smaller images of himself. And then as the music kicks in, he becomes whole, his skin becomes like the, a, a normal skin color. It's like he's, like they're filling in the pixels. Yeah. <laughs> like he's heard, uh, it's all just like floating off of him. And he's just like, whoa, what the fuck's going on? I mean, the, the same thing happens to Nezumi too. And it's specifically like they meet up, they're hemmed in by all the like weird hexagons. Uh, and then the the transition in the song happens where the hexagons sort of blow away and they end up in this uh, weird scape that's just like water and then a sky and the sky is reflected in the water, obviously. And they're just standing there staring at each other. And as you said, all of the little bits of their lives go flying away. It's so good. It's really good. It's in my top openings, for sure. Yes, yeah, it, it is now, yes. I also just want to say um, the like little bit where they just sort of like um, smile at each other, like subtly, yeah. is really nice. And then just to top it off, they very unsettling put a rainbow filter over the whole opening at the end of it. <laughs> Subtlety. But yeah, like like I said, I feel almost bad for the ending because the ending is also really good. It's called uh, yeah. Rokuto Se no Yoru by... It's pronounced M-A, but it's like French, so it's I-M-E-R. You will have heard one of their songs in something, probably. You have heard them from Fate Stay Night, almost certainly, <laughs> because they did a bunch of Fate Stay Night stuff. The name's interesting because it's uh, Rokuto Se no Yoru is a sixth magnitude star, which are the like darkest stars that you can see by yourself. Jupiter, uh, not Jupiter, uh, Neptune would be like eight. Normal light is seven. Like what? You, uh, like the limits of human vision is seven. And then six is like series, I think. Uh, the okay. asteroid. Not important, but like uh, <laughs> I learned something about astronomy today uh, as a result of this. Um, it's a vocal piano background uh, music to this. Like, I mean, there are other accompaniment from other things, but the real main thing is just the like sad piano. It's it's also a very slow one, but this is a bit more like a classic like ballad like vocal. You could see this being like popular. MA is very popular, I think. At least they were. And like normally I shit on slideshow endings. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but this I actually like this one because although it is just pans of scenes, it's all them playing in a park at winter and it's just adorable. And it's like a specifically like a kind of destroyed rundown park. Also, like it's kind of badass when Nesmi throws a snowball uh, at Shion and he catches it and it doesn't yeah. destroy. It's like, that's cool. But the reason I really like this is because it's mim mim mimicking the seasonal change that is going to happen in the anime. Yes. So it's a winter scene and it's going to end on a spring scene. And this is going to be like after he catches the snowball and then like everything gets pin uh, like pinker and brighter and the lyrics are all about being reborn and illuminating tomorrow and it's just like mm, yeah yeah it's good <laughs> like jesus christ i like step up your game other anime <laughs> like what do we talk about next i'm too happy <laughs> uh, next we said we were going unless to you have anything you want to say about them because <laughs> no no i'm i'm good i'm good i'm good we have something new for regular podcast listeners. I mean, this whole episode was new structure, but we have a larger discussion topic. We're going to try and rectify our discussion, the discussion that we had when we did 
get backers and and run the wind and try to have a proper better discussion about boys love and queer representation in anime and manga good place to start off is to get our terminology clear so lots of people will be familiar with the uh, word yaoi no i said yaoi (laughs) yes yaoi (laughs) yaoi and some other people may be familiar with the term uh shonen ai japan doesn't really use either of these anymore and i'm not sure to the extent that they ever did the whole thing it's all boys love so when people talk about yaoi being way more sexual than shonen ai or whatever they're they're wrong there's just boys love and they have different levels of sex and what they focus on like any genre would like there are there there does seem to be like some difference in that there like there is the term ero beard which appears yes. a lot more often these days to try and bring in like the the standard terminology of ero manga yeah um but there's actually a little bit of sexism here in the um what sexism around the boys love fandom no the uh the because B, like bl often hasn't even really been considered pornography but yeah. just ladies manga Although it is, although it is still subject to uh, Japan's criminal code and shit. With uh, with all, another term worth mentioning is the fujoshi is the young, mostly heterosexual women who enjoys reading boys' love content. Yeah. And the term literally means rotten woman. Yes, it's it's quite a bad term. No misogyny here at all. In fairness, there is also the term fudanshi for the male boys' love thing, which is rotten man. But still. One of the main things about uh, Boys Love and Yaoi is it's a heteronormative romance, still reinforcing traditional values between two men. As in, we have the seme and uke, we have top and bottom, we have the female and male partner in the relationship, reinforcing essentially traditional values through this. That is the stereotype. It is more complicated than that. In particular, the whole trend of Queer women reading BL instead of Yuri in a lot of cases because they find the stories speak to their experiences more than a lot of Yuri that are <laughs> written by men. Yuri is a very saccharine genre. Yes. There may even be something to do with comparing Semi and Uke to Butch and Femme, but I don't want to get into that. Mm. Before we talk about sexuality and free representation in number six, we should probably talk about some other famous examples in um, anime history, like leading up to this point and after. Like we've got uh, Sailor Moon as like yes. one of the first showing girls, showing like a loving relationship between two Completely women. Completely ruined by the, by the uh, English translation. Yeah, I mean, definitely. We have, um, we have uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion with Shinji yes. and Saoru. Uh, people, people get mad at us for saying that, but fuck off. That caused such a big stir in Japan that they that the anime got their funding pulled, which is why the last two episodes of Evangelion are such a famously such a disaster that they needed several movies to fix. Uh, a disaster that's really good. But most of these were very open to interpretation by fans. Like it's, 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 it's the Sailor Moon one isn't really having looked at the actual episodes. Also, Utena. Yeah, Utena. Then probably. The most famous recent example is Yuri on Ice, with the romance between Yuri and Yuri as a represent as they literally have a proposal. So they kiss each other. They get engaged. Yeah, they put rings on each other's fingers. Like, 
like the only the only thing that's missing is the gay sex and he does uh he does <laughs> like strip and do pole dancing with um Kristoff. Yes. Uh, and they do sleep together just in like the same bed at one point if I remember correctly. And some other things specifically uh for for romance between two men is uh Banana Fish which is a very classic title. But at the same time um even though it's progressed a lot from what it used to be it's still not explicit even the creators are still saying uh quotation in the end we're not going to tell anybody what to think or rather compel anyone to interpret it in a certain way so please decide by yourself what are they saying that about uh about the romance between victor and yuri look 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 we're not telling you we're showing you <laughs> which creator said that kubo I feel like so. <laughs> I feel like if you asked Sari Yamamoto that question, she would give a very different answer. I mean, it's the writer, so he he's the one who wrote the characters. While anime like traditionally hasn't like made it like a very sexual, uh, like they they haven't really gone all in on the on the on the gay sex. <laughs> 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 like that's not. That's not really true of of, um, of uh, manga, right? There's plenty of like classic, classic. I, I don't. I've, what's classic? I'm I'm getting everything from uh, the paper. The bitches of boys love. Before we move on to manga, I would just like to ask Freya because you watched Given, right? I did. How was that as a representation as a like a queer anime? Uh, it was really good. It's also the one that everybody uses as an example, so I don't want to talk about it. It is really good, though. The other one that people bring up a lot is uh, the film Dokusei. And in particular, <laughs> people who I follow on Twitter like to say that everybody always talks about those two and doesn't talk about anything else. So uh, I'd also like to mention Sarah Zanmai, which is a good show. It's very strange, but it's a good show. It's, it's very Yukihara. Also, also very explicit about at least two of the char- characters loving each other. So you know, and it's kind of, it's kind of a thematic purpose of the show to respond to the the whole idea of oh we of uh, uh, not being explicit about it and whether that ma- and whether that matters or not. Also, 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 Ikuhara is pretty pretty cool with the whole thing, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like there's Ikuhara, there's the him cosplay as Sailor Moon. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff there. Could do, with, could do without the predatory lesbian in Penguin Drum, but anyway, that's a discussion for a different day. So what were you going to say about uh, manga, Ian? Well, I would say that, like, I mean, if we're only going to talk about anime, sure, because um, you, you're limited to what you can sort of show on television, and that otherwise you're going to, like, hentai OVA territory. And my knowledge of that is much less than my knowledge of standard anime, just because I don't... I don't have the time to learn about hentai, <laughs> but, I, I, but like you, I've, I was re- reading some like academic stuff. Like um, I've got a paper up in front of me, uh, the bitches of boys loves co- boys love comic, and like one of the things they mentioned is just like, for instance, like one of the classic things in BL is the I don't want to call it predatory, but there is a lot of non-consexual sex in classic BL. Certainly, sometimes within a sadomasochistic content. And like they would say that someone like Mizoguchi would say that in BL, rape acts as a guise for love. This is a quotation as an indication of the character's irresistible charm, and for a straight semi, an imposition of femininity onto their uke, which yeah. which is a hell of a sentence. <laughs> which also like just leads to like there is a much greater like em- representation for like 
adjacent sexual topics like uh, BDSM. We would probably need to, if we were going to do this, we should probably like read stuff like uh, the Song of Wind and Trees or Finder or like something like this and like. Fortunately, we can have this discussion again at some time because I have other actually BL anime on my list. This is probably why it's worth mentioning that um, gay men in Japan, there is a tense history with them and their BL, I suppose. Yeah. Right. This is one thing that was mentioned in this in this paper, is the uh, kind of the modern BL uh, genre kind of taken its cues more from uh, gay comics than it traditionally used to. Specific, specifically, the uh, gay men created a sort of genre of their own called gay comedy, which includes things like Barra. But I've, I've heard that that's also been criticized for falling into gender roles, so it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I'm, I don't want to go into too much detail because this is just something I've read in article. I've not done too much research, but the, like, the history of homosexuality in Japan used to be much more liberated. <laughs> if, if you were a noble. But specifically about a um, a re like a rewriting of of views on uh, gay on gay men during like once east once Western influence started coming in. Yeah, I mean this was specific. This was explicitly true about uh, female sexuality in particular because like women were the primary novelists in Japan at the time okay. were, were female authors. Mm. But yeah, like a lot of things, Japan changed a lot during the Meiji Restoration, and some of that was changing sexual mores. But yeah, bring, bringing it back around to um, manga and anime. Specifically to number six. We've talked a lot about BL here. Here's where it gets uh, interesting, because the author specifically did not want this to be a boys' love story. She wanted it to be a queer romance story, which is interesting, because, as I think we said there isn't very much focus on the sexual stuff. There's a lot of focus on the emotional, uh, mutual emotional interest between them. Though I am aware that they do kiss later on. Okay, I think I knew that. Um, and in particular, there's a lot of focus put on the the more like cute moments between it, like when they hold hands or when they're like close to each other. And a lot less on any kind of sexual interest. Like, Nezumi has his shirt off at one point, and there's no like weird gazy stuff with it. Yeah, it's never leery in any way. It just it's played rather straight. Like it's just two people in a in a room. Not that there's inherently anything wrong with that. But I I thought it worked really. I I thought it did a pretty good job compared to some other anime. Yeah. The, the like people are doing a lot better generally in in more modern times. Yes. Um, I would say, like, if you were to compare, say, when people were talking about happiness, and you've got, like, June being the token crossdresser and, like, uh, are traps gay, lol, uh, versus, like, recent manga that we've had, like, bloom into you. Shimanami, Tassagari. I would still say that that is the best queer manga I've personally read. My private, ex- my private experience, uh, lesbian experience with loneliness, which also wow. very good. Yes, also very good. Like just greater diversity in general. Uh, there was even a manga written by a, uh, a trans person talking about her experience with um, uh, SRS and all the tribulations uh, she had to go through. 
but like like at least at least they're at least it's trying now like um uh love me for who i am is just coming out soon and that's had interesting reviews but that's taken like not like an angle on which tries to like separate out four different takes on what that means Mm. uh which is unusual I mean, there's a long history of queer stuff showing up in more "quote unquote" mainstream things. Uh, I don't think if Kino's journey <laughs> is mainstream, but uh, it's at least famous and is very important to me for my gender stuff. I'll maybe write a blog about that at some point. Also, a very good show, worth and worth watching. Yes. Well, with all that, this is a very long episode. It's time to talk about our verdicts. So, Dinny, how many times would you yell into the storm about this anime? So, yeah, I think I'm going to give this show a four, and I think it speaks for itself with everything we've already talked about. How about you, Ian? This is a really tough one, because I don't want to say it's a five, but it might be a five, question mark? Hmm. So... I'm going to chicken out and say 4.5. <laughs> Fair enough. How about you, Freya? Well, I, <laughs> I'm also going to chicken out because I do not think this is better than Ghost Hound. So, however, it was better, honestly better than I expected after I heard that it was adapting nine, uh, nine novels in 11 episodes. <laughs> um, much better. It really solved the relationship between the two characters. The dystopia was... Fine. Fairly standard, but better, again, better than I expected. And it's interesting for mathematic purpose, though. It's only interesting for mathematic purpose because you know what the author was intending with it. But I still think it got it across well. So, yeah, four and a half. Some execution problems. I'm about to, I do not have any pieces of trivia this week. Do either of you have any that you want to mention? I don't have trivia, but I do want to mention something because I keep forgetting to fucking mention Because I kept forgetting to fucking mention it. One interesting choice in this show, is that all of the characters are only given a single name. Yes. Like, it's no, it's no, it's no Yoshida-san and Takamoto-sensei. It's all Karan, Shion, Nezumi. I don't know if that has any significance, but I'm starting to think that, like, think back to what you said ages ago about them possibly being uh, replaceable components, in which case, it breaks the tie with the family because you're not a member of the Takamoto dynasty. You're just you're just the new you're the new Shion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was something that I thought was interesting and kept forgetting to mention. This isn't really a piece of trivia, but hexagons are the most common shape in nature. Specifically, they show up in beehives and in insects in general. All of their compound eyes are made up of hexagons. Yeah, hexagons uh, have the mathematical advantage of one, tiling a plane, and two, having a good surface area to interior area ratio. Uh, I would both like to watch this and read the books. Reading the books is tricky. Danny, how is the manga? It's fine. It's pretty <laughs> okay, good. I'll, okay, I'll skip that then. 
No, it's pretty good. Like it's, it's basically got the only difference is it's. Well, I don't uh, want to experience the same story through. Well, maybe it would experience the same story three <laughs> times to see how it was done differently. That might yeah. make an interesting video. No, no, no. What we, sh- what we should do then is one of us reads the novel, one of us reads the manga, oh, and one God. of us watches the anime, and then we talk about it. So I, th- I think we can all wholeheartedly recommend this. At least these yes. three episodes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, I haven't been this excited to watch the rest of the anime since Fujin Monogatari, which I yeah. haven't actually watched, <laughs> although I am really excited to. So, Likewise. Whereas I whereas I did watch almost all of Orange, <laughs> and I was slightly less excited about that, although Orange was also very good. It's my turn it's my turn to pick what we're watching next week. So what are we watching next week? Well, I was wanting to like pick like something like really stupid sci-fi. So my original plan was that we were either going to watch Noeen or Virus. But uh, considering we just watched this, I'm not really feeling it anymore. (laughs) So we're going to watch something chiller next week. uh, And we're going to watch the Yokohama Kaidashi Kiko. Oh, nice. Nice. We're the Anime Research Group. Weekly podcast coming out every Thursday. More or less. If you'd like to tell us what you thought of the episode or suggest something for future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at research underscore anime or drop us an email at researchanime at gmail.com. Goodbye. Bye.